Looking for a vacation that actually feels like a good movie? Well, look no more. With Carnival Cruise Line, it's all up to you. You can kick back or dive right into the fun. Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship from a ride on Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family-style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. So pack those bags, but be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival. Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas, and Panama. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Your spring is about to get a whole lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power for mowing, trimming, and blowing with the RYOBI 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime and blower power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force all on one interchangeable battery. Get the cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the RYOBI 18-volt OnePlus system only at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. A long, heated debate in the helpline comes to an end. The true meaning of a bezoar and celebrated graphic novelist Ed Brubaker joins Jason and I for a big talk about his newest book, Reckless, Episode 3. It's all happening here on today's How Did This Get Made mini-episode, Hit the Theme! Hello, people of Earth, and welcome to a How Did This Get Made mini episode. I'm your host, Tall John Shear, aka Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we tell you everything that you need to know for next week's How Did This Get Made episode, what we're watching, where to watch it, and how much it costs. And you get a chance to take the mic to tell us everything that you thought we might have missed, your theories, your thoughts on last week's episode, which of course was malignant. We also have a very special interview in today's show. I cannot wait to bring you our very special guest. He's a How Did This Get Made all-star, and he will be talking about his brand new book. I'm talking about Ed Brubaker. Jason and I sit down with Ed to talk about Reckless Book 3. If you've not been reading Reckless, you are missing out, but he's going to sit down, talk about... We're going to honestly get ready for a large conversation about Magnum P.I. because Jason and I get into it with Ed about our favorite detectives. So we hope you stay tuned for that. Um, I want to give a big shout out to Conjurer. Conjurer, thank you so much for that amazing theme song. And let you know that 
we are doing something very special. Every Monday, we're doing something called Matinee Monday, which means we are releasing an old episode from the How Did This Get Made vault for you to go back and look at. And we're trying to correlate the picks to movies that we have done on the show. So our first release is the very controversial, the very, very, I mean, to this day, people are still arguing about it. Drop Dead Fred episode. Are you Team Sanity? Are you Team Fred? A chance to go back and revisit it. If you don't have Stitcher Premium, this is a great chance to hear the whole episode. And you can actually watch a little bit of a video introduction of it and hear a little sound clip of it on my YouTube page. I'm playing around with doing a little bit of this uh, video intros for these How Did This Get Made episodes because why not? We're we're in a content-based society. I'm trying to give you all some content. Let's do it. Let's get it out there. More ways to get this show. Um, but enough of my yapping. Uh, let's hear from you because I know you have problems. Of course you do with your life, your job, parenting, whatever it is. I'm here to help you. I'm like Oprah without the magazine. I'm like Dr. Phil without the mustache, but with a full beard. I'd love to see Miss Dr. Phil with a full beard. I think you would look good. Uh, you ask me questions. I'll give you answers. It is time for the Paul Helpline. This is Paul's Helpline. Can you dig it? You give him two. Thank you, Teddy Love Supreme. Here we go. Let's hear from our friend Aaron in Madison. Hi, Paul. It's Aaron calling from Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm calling for some new parent advice uh, as we approach the holiday season and also my daughter's first birthday. How do I keep our well-meaning relatives from buying us too many toys? Uh, it just seems as though every time we see our family, they have these loud, plastic, obnoxious toys to give us. And I know they're well-meaning and I know they love to shop for the toys, but, you know, we live in a smaller apartment. We try to be pretty minimalist, and we also try to avoid plastics um, that are unnecessary. And an- another aspect of this is that, you know, my husband and I are both graduate students. Our family income is quite modest, and so it's just kind of upsetting that they're spending all this money on toys when really what we need is just cash for groceries and daycare. So any advice that you could give us would be really greatly appreciated. Thanks so much. Big fan of the show from day one. Aaron. Wow, this is a very hard question and a very good one because, look, relatives are known for giving your kids the loudest, most annoying toys. They think it's funny, but then you have to bring it home. I have so many minion fart guns in my house that I have to hide them. I have so many noisemakers, a little gerbil or hamster that dances to music and records your voice. Every annoying gift has been given to me by a relative. I get that. I get that. I understand that. And my first thought was going to be, oh, who cares? Let them give you whatever and then just throw it away. First of all, it's not fair to the kid because you don't want to take away their toys. By the way, I'm a huge, huge recycler of toys. I get them out of the house as quick as they come in uh, because you know if a toy is sticking And once the new toy's in, the other toys can go away. They don't go back. But 
I think that you actually bring up a really good point. You have this modest budget and you have family members who really want to give your kids something. So what if you just go the honesty route? Maybe I'm turning a corner here. Maybe, you know, a lot of times I'm like, figuring out ways you can manipulate a situation to say something without actually saying it. Maybe I'm just going to go and say, can we do something very honest and say, family, we love you. Can we do a special thing this year? Because we have a small apartment and we need a little bit uh, more energy in our childcare that we just commit to one gift under $10 or 15 or 20, whatever you want to do, whatever you feel safe with. And then anything else that you might spend on a toy, you put it in a check and we'll put that towards the betterment of our child, whether that's a soccer class, uh, babysitting services, food, whatever it is. You can just kind of label it something like we're putting it in their bank account. It's something that we really want to do because what we find is we want to give our child the best life possible and those things will enrich their life. But we also know that you want to give them something in the moment. And if we keep the price down on that and you actually give us something to give year-round, it will be such a benefit to us and our family. And I think that that is a really honest way of doing something. Now they may feel pressure, like do I, they want money? Are they in trouble for money? But I think if you frame it as if you want this money to enrich your child's life, it's sort of like a honeymoon fund, but for a kid. And I think that that's a brilliant idea. I have a kid who is in two basketball classes a week, one golf class and two soccer classes. Like they're doing a lot. My other kid's in Spanish class, improv class. I didn't want him to do improv class. He found out about an improv class. He doesn't know what I do. I don't tell him. I never will. Um, So I think that is my tact. I hope that works. Um, And let me know, because I think this could be really good advice to a lot of people out there because kids shit is expensive. I'm buying baby cleats. You know how quick they're going to use those cleats? They're going to use them for like four months and I have to buy new cleats. I hate it. Um, All right. Let me know how that goes. And I appreciate you. And I understand everything that you're saying. And I get it. And uh, recycle those toys. Get them out as quick as they get in. Please, please, please. Uh, All right. Next phone call. And I got to tell you, people, if you are from Ontario, listen up. Okay. This is an important phone call for all of our friends in Ontario, Canada. Uh, Jesse, take it away. Hi, Paul. This is Jesse calling from Ontario, Canada. It's It's been a few months since my wife and I submitted dueling voicemails to you regarding our disagreement on the subject matter of installing a pool in the backyard of our home in London, Ontario. My wife, to briefly recap, is pro-pool. I am anti-pool. My wife and I have continued these conversations, haven't really gotten anywhere, haven't made a lot of progress, despite your helpful suggestion to just get a cover and heat the pool, and that would somehow eradicate the two feet of snow on top of it most of the year. I'm calling today to provide you a bit of an update. If my wife is listening, that may come as a bit of a surprise because, as I said, between the two of us, we haven't made a lot of progress. But I've been thinking an awful lot about this, and I think in life, something you can't put a price tag on is your spouse's happiness in life. And I wanted to call and let you know that I've decided to capitulate to my wife's demands and agree to have a pool installed in our house. Now, it's going to take a little time. You know, COVID slowed a lot of things down. Demand has gone up. Supply has gone down. Um, it's 
probably going to be a year and a half before we get it installed. I wanted to thank you for your advice. As um, unhelpful as it may have been, it has helped us to come to this resolution. And I'd like you finally to know that somewhere in rural Ontario, there is a mail carrier driving around in her Toyota RAV4, listening to this podcast, and screaming in delight at this announcement. Thanks very much. Oh, damn it. Damn it. Jesse, you're getting a pool. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love that I was not helpful in this decision, but I think I was because you're getting a goddamn pool. You know what? Life is short in a year and a half. Just make sure that wherever you put this pool, you're going to stay there. I hope you're going to stay there. Don't make sure before you put that pool in the ground that you are committed to being in this house because that would be the worst. Uh, I'm... I, my heart goes out uh, to your wife right now. I think you're going to enjoy it. I think it's going to be great. I think, you know, these are the things that we need to do. We just talked about not spending money, but we talked about the enrichment of your life. And when your spouse wants something, give it to them. We don't have a whole life. We don't know how much time we have. And even if we get a great year in that pool, it's better than no pool for a year. Is that about right? People, I'm writing a self-help book and that's going to be the chapter. Congratulations, Jesse. Congratulations, Jesse's wife. I'm glad that you're going to enjoy this pool and I want to see pictures. I want to do everything. If I ever come to Ontario, I am going to swim in your pool. All right. Thank you everybody for your calls and remember to call us anytime at 619-P-A-U-L-A-S-K, 619-728-5275. Damn, I'm excited for Jesse and his wife. Ontario, Canada's got a pool, new pool in there. All right. Uh, people, I love these songs. You just heard an amazing song from The Conjurer and Teddy Love Supreme. Did I say thank you to Teddy Love Supreme? If I didn't, Teddy Love Supreme did the uh, Paul Helpline song and that was great. Um, so now I'm throwing down the gauntlet to you. If you want to create your own song for the show, please do it. Any segment of the mini episode, we are looking for themes. Mailbag, helpline, corrections and omissions, etc. You write it, you record it, you send it to how did this get made at earwolf.com and we will play it. That's right. Keep it short, keep it sweet, and uh, keep it as good as Teddy Love Supreme or the Conjurer. All right, we'll be right back after this commercial break. All right, people. Now, before we reveal what is coming up next week, we need to go back. We need to go back and talk about the things that we dropped the ball on from last week's episode. So we're turning the show over to you as you tell us some... That's right. Corrections and omissions. Thank you. Cruel eyes. Cruel eyes. It's spelt the French way. Cruel. 
Uh, I love Crew Lies and I love that song. Uh, people, we've gone on Discord, the brand new How Did This Get Made Discord, which is discord.gg slash htgm. And you also have my Discord, which is discord.gg slash Paul Shear. We're actually doing some live events on the Discord. Uh, maybe I'll even do a live event on How Did This Get Made, but come on over. We'll talk. We'll have a good time. Um, here's the thing. The Discord has been amazing. We have amazing moderators in both camps. I love the communication. I love the world building. The world building. It's not like Dune, but I just think there's good relationships being made there. And I love these comments because I'm actually able to see a few of them and uh, and get in the mix a little bit. So let's go to the Discord right now. I Heart Puffins writes, I am a doctor, and I would just like to clarify that the tumor with teeth and hair is usually a teratoma. Now, this is something, by the way, that everyone has brought up to me. I've gotten a lot of people nailing me about this, but let's let let the uh, doctor figure it out. Uh, dermoid cysts can contain hair, but usually just comprised of dermal tissues such as skin, oil gland, and sometimes hair follicles. Also, Jason said that a bezoar is from Harry Potter. While I don't know if anything in Harry Potter is called a bezoar, in medicine, a bezoar is a collection of indigestible materials trapped in the stomach, most often when people eat their own hair for years. Oh, God. Uh, Of the many patients I have had over the years who have had to have surgery for this, none of them will admit to eating their own hair. Oh, God, this is grossing me out. All of the twin stuff that was said was correct, though. And in one of my pregnancies, my son had a vanishing twin. Maybe he will have a tiny malignant inside of him. No, no. Dr. I Heart Puffins do not wish that on anyone. Uh, I think you guys implied that this happened in uh, parasitic twins only. So, wow. Wow. You just blew my mind, Dr. I Heart Puffins. Uh, so much information there. I I don't want to eat for a week. Uh Eating their own hair. God damn. All right. Uh, does anyone eat their own hair? Give me a call on the Paul helpline. Tell me why. You can do it facelessly. We don't see your face. Um, okay. This is an amazing... Uh, <laughs> By the way, I want to say thank you to everyone who participated in the hashtag me lignant uh, challenge. You can see all of uh, the ones that I was able to retweet on our Twitter feed. I put some of them on our Instagram feed as well. Y'all did an amazing job. Now, this image that is with this next post, you got to see it on the Discord to believe it. But new blue goo uh, has really blown it out here. Similar to Jason's theory, I think that while Gabrielle emerges from the back of Madison's skull, the scalp is split and gets pushed towards the front and side of Madison's face. But also, there's the size and mass of Gabriel to account for. I think the front of Madison's face probably caves in two, like the face of a spoon. He breaks and dislocates her arms, so why not her jaw and face bones too? A concave face would be much easier to hide with hair and would also explain why Gabriel's face looks inside out. I don't remember Madison's face ever fully shown while Gabriel is fully out, and then boom, they show an image of it that wow uh gross wow you guys are taking me down some really the 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 spoon madison spoon face look i'm gonna just straight up say that madison would be severely incapacitated if that much of her face and scalp and brain i mean i know they're sharing a brain i don't know oh i don't even want to think about it okay let's go to the phones i need to clear my head John from SoCal, what do you got? 
Hey, Paul. This is John from Southern California. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I'm listening to the Malignant episode, and I, you just mentioned the whole thing about the jail cell, and I have this theory about why there's like 70s people, and I didn't, I thought you would have noticed because you're a kid from the 80s as well. <laughs> Their blender in the kitchen was an old blender, and like there's this weird thing in the, like some of the appliances in the movie are like old, and then the house is like new and they're using cell phones. Isn't that all malignance or, or, uh, whatever the brother's name is now I'm forgetting? But anyway, isn't that all him creating that projection so that she thinks that she's in the real world? So when he was alive in the late seventies, early eighties or whatever, those are the objects that he would have known existed. So that's why there's this weird mishmash of modern and like late 70s, early 80s uh, references, be it people wearing 70s disco outfits and jail cells or just appliances in the house being old and they're using cell phones. Just thought that was an interesting uh, theory. I don't know if it works or not, but uh, there it is. Take care. Love the show. Okay. Huh. Hmm. This one kind of stumps me. So you're saying that Malignant, when inside the brain is controlling everything that she sees. But yet, we're not looking at things through her POV. We are seeing things through a neutral uh, point of view, or at least it seems that way. Huh. I I like this idea. So this whole movie was seen that way. Now, what would have made that that theory work is if the entire hospital changed at the end. I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, it's a great theory. It's a smart theory, but it doesn't seem to uh, work in any way with the plot. Like there's nothing in this that would like, I believe she's a functioning person, I guess is what I'm saying. And so what you're saying is this entire time she's been making, uh, or Malignant has been making her see, I don't buy it. I like it. I don't buy it. How about that? That's how I land on that one. If anyone disagrees with me or agrees with John, let me know. Uh, Let's keep these comments going. Uh, Dennis from Missouri. Hey, Paul, this is Dennis calling from Missouri. Uh, I wanted to talk about Malignant. I don't think Malignant is breaking the arms. I think Malignant was dislocating the joints. If you watch, I feel like the arms become kind of floppy, and Malignant has figured out how to use the floppiness to his advantage when killing people. I also want to say that when I was five years old, my dad was building our house. I was sitting on what would become the framing um, for the attic, And I fell out of that about eight feet to the ground on the concrete, landed on my butt, and was not hurt. No broken bones, no scratches, not even much of a bruise. Thanks for a great show. Uh, Keep up the good work. Goodbye. Wow. 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 Okay, first of all, producer Cody uh, notes that her close friend drove uh, his car off a cliff and had no injuries. The doctors thought he was knocked unconscious somehow before his car drove off the cliff in a very steep hill. And there's something to be said about not being injured when you're floppy. So, I mean, floppy is maybe, I mean, look, I've always, (laughs) when I was traveling around, one of the first gigs I had, uh, I was taping uh, different pieces 
for the show. And I had a DP, a director of photography, who would always uh, scream out one thing whenever we were driving. If we were in a van going to set um, and someone hit the brake, he would say, loosen your body for impact. And it, it <laughs> I think about it all the time. Loosen your body for impact. Because if you tighten for impact, you will break a bone. So loosen your body for impact is kind of in your theory. And I like your theory that uh, Malignant's kind of doing uh, a little bit of a uh, rigs from Lethal Weapon, kind of dislocating uh, their their shoulders and and arms. So I like that idea. I like loose, floppy, floppy body, floppy body. Uh, it all works. It all works to me. Dennis, you're a goddamn genius. I like it. I'm not going to clarify anything he said because he said it so perfectly. Uh, back to the Discord, RyRy80 writes, the performers who play Gabriel uh, slash Malignant need a shout out. Yes, RyRy, you are totally right. Both of them have been on America's Got Talent and are amazing contortionists. Troy James and Marina Mazipi or Mazepa. You can look them up on YouTube. Uh, there's Marina Mazepa. She has a contortionist dancer, uh, and it says crazier than the exorcist, and it is amazing. And then Troy James uh, has another video called uh, Freak Out Act. Uh, these are, wow. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I don't. The worst thing is a reaction video <laughs> where you can't see anything. But I'm telling you, you have to check it out. Uh, a big, huge shout out to Troy James and Marina uh, Mazepa who I have to say, the reason why we didn't give them a shout out is I didn't even think there was a person in there. I thought it was a puppet or a CGI. So to know that Maligny, little baby Maligny, was actually played by two amazing performers, uh, just, again, makes me so uh, appreciative of the genius of this movie. Uh, Cal... 100 writes, there's a small slash useless scene where the sister and mom get Madison's adoption certificate. The mother says something like, you see, I told you there's a reason for not throwing this stuff out. Was she just justifying not throwing away her adopted child's birth certificate? There's no practical use or sentimental value for that. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, well, okay. Hmm. Well, if I adopted someone, I would keep that adoption certificate, right? That doesn't seem to be, I, I, I mean, there is sentiment. You say there's no practical use or sentimental. There is. You adopted someone. That's a moment. That's a, that is important. It's not like you need a receipt. You don't need to show it. But I would, I mean, look, the things I keep from my kids, I would keep, if I adopted my child, I would keep that certificate because that's like the start of this life. It's a, I think that is important. I, I know that that scene is useless and it's weird that she's even justifying it. She took, oh, of course we have that. Of course we have that because we adopted you. I, I have a birth certificate. I have, these are the things that we keep. We disagree, but we agree. Okay. Uh, no, actually we just disagree. Um, so many great corrections and omissions this week, but there can only be one winner. And I think we all know that winner is our doctor. That's right. Dr. I heart puffins who, opened our minds and eyes to one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard. People who eat hair and then have to have surgery to get that hair removed, but yet will not admit that they eat hair. Oh, God damn. Yikes. Thank you for implanting this terrible, terrible image in my head. And uh, I will now tell it to everyone I know to make sure that they never eat their own hair. Oh, I'm even thinking about eating hair. I'm getting so grossed out. Oh, you know, just play the theme. Nothing, nothing. 
Thank you, Francis Day. Uh, that's right, Dr. Iheart Puffins. You are our winner. You get nothing, but you will forever hold a place in my heart and you will have burned in a uh, special spot into my brain because I can never let that go. We'll be right back after this with Ed Brubaker and more. Jason, we are bringing on uh, one of our special guests from How Did This Get Made? He is, I would consider him a How Did This Get Made all-star. Um, he is also an award winner, a multi award-winning graphic novelist uh, who has so many credits to his name, but I would say you might know him as uh, the person behind creating Winter Soldier, uh, the person behind the amazing series Gotham PD, but more importantly, uh, the series of things that he's been doing that I've been loving so much lately has been his independent books. They have been absolutely great. I know you and I are both a fan of this guy. Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, big time, big time. They, and this have, have been a central part of my pandemic reading has been uh, a tremendous amount of of this gentleman's books and his continuing partnership with the artist Sean Phillips. Yes. So we're talking about books like Fatal, Velvet, The Fade Out, Criminal, Killer Be Killed, Pulp. And the book that we're going to be talking a lot about today is Reckless, which is, I think, right up you and my, our alley. Please welcome. Oh, yeah. Ed Brubaker. Ed, welcome back to the show, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. I watched every movie I could possibly think of that we might talk about. And then, <laughs> so I, are we are we are we still doing Die Hard 4? <laughs> yes. By the yes. way, I, I've told Ed, Ed has a bad movie night or a, a celebration of bad <laughs> movies. And I told Ed that if, you know, it's not complete until he gets Governor Gabby in that night. Uh, have oh you been able God. to find it yet, Ed? Uh, well, yeah, you sent me the link. Okay, guys. Now, oh so, yeah, maybe we should. Well, I think you know, everyone I, will have to watch it on their phones. <laughs> <laughs> it is impossible to find in any other way, shape, or form. Yes. So you've now it's, you've seen it all. It is. It is worth it. I can't. I can't recommend that movie highly enough. If you are into uh, bad movies, that is a great bad one. Um, I would. I yeah. I want to. How how will it stack up against Nicole Kidman's wonderful performance in BMX Bandits from nineteen eighty three? Oh my god. <laughs> BMX Bandits and um, The Legend of Billie Jean are kind of inextricably linked to me. <laughs> yeah. Ed, the last two times we had you on, we had you on for Daredevil and then The Phantom. Yeah, the uh, Phantom. And both really fun episodes. Uh, but today we are going to be talking more about the work that you do because Jason and I really just wanted to geek out with you a little bit. Um, specifically because comics this... talk, Ed, we're yeah. doing comics talk for you. Um, how did this comic get made? <laughs> there it is. Yeah. How did, tell how us... did this comic get, get written and drawn? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we all have talked about this. Ed, you and I have talked about this. Jason and I, we've talked about this. Jason grew up, you love Magnum, right? That was your like kind of entry into yes, like I, the private detective. I, yes. Not only was Magnum like my favorite TV show growing up. In the pandemic, I have rewatched almost all of Magnum PI the series. Wow. Oh my god. Wow. Like I have rewatched the entirety of it and 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 it is and I will say aside from certain kind of elemental things like how slowly TV moved back then and yeah. certain things like that, it really remains a very compelling show. 
It is remember, so. Remember the one where he's like lost at sea and remembering his treading water. That yeah. is that is one of the most amazing. That is a top five episode of television for me. Yeah, that yeah. the We're treading water it. episode of Magnum PI, the Buffy the Vampire episode called Hush. Hush. Uh, oh yeah. Um, like there are certain singular episodes that to me are incredible, and that is one of them. And it is absolutely like incredible on a rewatch. So do yourself a favor. I'm gonna. That's that's next on my list. I have watched all of Rockford twice through. So um, good. Murder She Wrote. Oh, Murder like, She Murder Wrote. She wrote. My Great. wife got really into rewatching Murder She Wrote. I'd never watched it before. I'm friends with. Yep. I'm friends with Chris Levinson, whose dad was the co-creator of Columbo and Murder, She Wrote. And so I got some behind the scenes talk about Murder, She Wrote, which which just made me really Whoa. want to watch it. Um, I've been rewatching Columbo as well. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I love Columbo. I, I was going to say Rockford was a big staple for me, but I oh, yeah. like Murder, She Wrote falls into that category of shows that I don't even think were shot. Like, you know, it's like when you said like, oh, behind the scenes, I'm like, oh, right. Those are actors. Like, it just, it feels <laughs> different. Like it was before, it was when I watched it when I was naive and I didn't understand yeah. that there was like television and she had contracts and this was a successful show. Like, it's funny how those certain shows like feel there separate. There was a period of my childhood where Magnum P.I. and Murder, She Wrote were back-to-back shows on Sunday night. On CBS. Oh. They ruled. And that was, yeah. and the A-Team and Dukes of Hazard were on Friday night, and Magnum <laughs> P.I. and Murder, She Wrote were on Sunday night. It was like the greatest. And the That's Carol hilarious. Burnett show and the Muppets oh, yeah. were on Sunday. Oh, my gosh. Well. Oh, my By God, the, way, the Carol Burnett show, yeah. If if you like Incredible. Murder, She Wrote, um, I don't even know where it's on, but Mapleworth Murders. I, I can tell you. Okay, yeah. I, I can tell you. And this is for people who have cable, because Magnum P.I. and Murder, She Wrote air two episodes per day on Hallmark Murders and Mysteries. Oh, wow. A channel, a channel, a sub Hallmark channel called Hallmark Murders and Mysteries, which all of the in-between commercials, because it's a, it's regular television, there are commercials, are absolutely hilarious. <laughs> what, what the, com- like I watch the commercials just because they're advertising shows that are like, premiering this Sunday, uh, season 11 of, you know, uh, you know, and then some TV show you've never heard of that is basically like Murder, She Wrote for Now, starring Andy McDowell. And like, there's uh, there's a wow. million of, there's, there's one about like, there's one about witches uh, that run like, oh, wow. that looks like they run like an Airbnb or something like that. It's fucking <laughs> bananas. I, I mean, there's so many of these shows. I, I was saying though, that there's an, what Paula Pell did this show called Mapleworth Murders, which is like a parody of Murder, She Wrote, uh, produced by like Seth Meyers. And it starred like John Lutz and J.B. Smooth. And it was on Quibi, which now I guess means it's on Roku. But I did watch that, and it's very, very funny. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, and it's, I'll I mean, totally check that out. every episode's 10 minutes. So I, I think... Ooh, that's fun. You know, so I yeah. think that there's basically like f- four cases uh, oh, wow. total. You know, they're very quick. But that being said, what I think really... All your books uh, bring me in. I, I'm, I'm in. I'm on board. But Reckless was a book that immediately captured my attention because it lives in this same kind of 
cool detective noir world. We're talking a lot about 80s, it's got too. A very, and, it's got a very shaggy, the long goodbye. Yes. Um, Which Big Lebowski. Saw. Los Angeles shaggy detective story. It takes place in the 80s. And, you know, you get me, Ed, in the minute you have the main character lives and works out of a dilapidated movie theater. I mean, it's yeah. one of you the know? best. It's one of the best things in the key. That's it. He, and he got the movie theater because he did a job for someone like some real estate mogul who just happened to be like, oh, yeah, take this building. And it's and it's the perfect setup. It's it is. I just love him in the balcony watching movies. Uh and the character as drawn uh, by the great uh, Sean Phillips is uh, looks to me uh, like the most badass version of Robert Redford that you would ever see. Like this is like this is like <laughs> three days of the condor Robert Redford, but a little bit more jacked. Let's, yeah. uh, you know, there's a, there's an energy to him that is. I, I love this character. I'm like, can you can you uh, what do you like uh, do one of those? He's a little bit, face apps? a little bit Steve McQueen, a little bit yes. Redford, yeah. a, more of like a surfer vibe. Yeah, because you know, he's a surfer. He's a Venice. He's like Venice Beach Robert Redford kind of. I you know, which I never it. existed. I'm sure, but but uh, it's a it's a great it's a series of books that you're putting out that are each one is a case. That that this character is, you know, kind of goes into the, you know, the it's like they're traditional noir, pulpy kind of noir type stories, yeah. private detective type stories. And I know for you, like, that's a real sweet spot, both in Criminal and in many of your other books. Like there is a you're you're I feel like you are frequently riffing off of those classic, you know, um, Philip Marlowe kind of detective story, you know, noir detective stories. Yeah, I definitely come out of that school of like pulp paperbacks and like the Parker books were a huge influence on me and Ross McDonald's like Lou Archer mysteries uh, sort of taught me how to write. I feel like um, these were. I was about to start a monthly comic book series that was going to be like really dark and and dealing with a lot of stuff that I thought it was going to be like so timely and perfect. And, you know, but as I started getting ready to work on it, the whole world like locked down and the comics industry shut down. And I just was reading like old pulp paperbacks all the time. And I just thought I want to do something like this instead that'll be more fun. And I, and I didn't even realize until I started jotting down notes on who this character was. Like I had a whole lifetime of ideas for a character like this, like, a, cause I almost never do a good guy. We're always like, I always doing like the good bad guy. Like he's right. a thief, but he's yeah. got like, you know, he's, he's like got a moral compass, but he'll also murder people to get away. And it, I wanted to do a good guy character because I was for the first time ever, I was reading the Travis McGee books, which were my dad's favorites. And I, was I like, just oh, read them are... over a pandemic uh, as cool. well. I read like yeah. two of them and I love them. They're so good. They were and they were so far ahead of their time. Which is really weird because they were behind their times on how sexist they are, which fit, right. would fit really well in with the times of like James Bond novels or whatever. But they're way ahead of their time on like he's like an environmentalist. And it's like yeah. 1962 and he's oh, talking about like the oil, you know, like or how they're wrecking the wetlands in Florida. And like every book, there's something about how we're fucking up the environment. In it. And this is like the 60s. And I was like, it's weird. You're so far ahead on the environmental stuff. And yet every woman he meets, he, you know, the description is basically, does he want to bang her or not? And I'm like, holy God. <laughs> but um, but I really wanted to do something in that field. That's why the covers for the books look like those old 
like paperback books that you'd yeah. see on the spinner rack at like the pick and save or you know the fed mart or whatever in the 70s like where they had like book 76 of the executioner um so i wanted to do something that felt like it came out of that world but with like our more modern sensibility and get rid of all the sexism and you know but still have that kind of slightly over the top guy takes a case he will murder people if he feels that they that they deserve it and he is you know this guy who's he's got some he's got a little bit of brain damage so he has trouble relating to people and um it's a very la in the 80s kind of thing which i felt was uh, just a lot of fun to try to escape back into the past and be able to talk a little bit about what the world's going through right now, or by, by remembering like all the, all the warnings we had from like the seventies onward about global warming or the way corporations will just do whatever, or, you know, there's like so much societal rot that we can look back at and see the ripples that came all the way through to today. And I just thought this will be fun. I'll, you know, I started making a list. I'm like, he drives a cool van. He he lives in a movie theater that he works out of. He's got an 800 number, like the Equalizer or something. And yeah, you know, his, his sidekick is like the super cool punk runaway girl. And, um, you know, like, cause you have to have certain elements to make it fit in with the genre. Yeah. But I thought they were gonna just be super easy and fun to do. And they'd be these over the top violent things. And then as I started working on them more and more, as usual, I just made it harder and harder for us. And I obsessively, I spent an hour this morning trying to find a good picture of like a gas station from 1988 in Los Angeles. And I was like, because <laughs> gas pumps looked different then, you know? Yeah. It's like everything about like, if you drive through LA and you, you can probably find like three gas stations that haven't been updated since 1988. But most of them are like completely different now and a different name. So it's like I'm always trying really hard to make sure at least because on the page, it costs nothing to recreate. You right. know, it cost Tarantino $50 million to recreate, you know, 70s L.A. Totally. But, yeah. uh, you know, for on, on paper, it's the same as blowing up the Death Star. You know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> So I'm always trying to get as much photo reference and include in the next book, book four, I actually have a scene at the original Okie Dog, which was a very big punk rock hangout in the late 70s, early 80s, oh, but is that. at a different location now. And it's nearly impossible to find pictures of the original one anymore. And uh, so it can took I, hours can to track I, can I ask the, you a oh, sure. quick question, like on a process level, like, is that like, is a huge part of it, not just writing these scripts, but finding photo references for, to send to Sean, are you, are you creating like a lookbook for every, or a, just a, even just a folder of pictures for every issue that is like the van should be like these vans or like, oh, yeah. are you creating, are you um, creating something or are you writing stuff and just getting back from Sean pages and are like, Oh yeah, that's, that's it. You know, it's a little bit of both. I mean, on when we did the fade out, which was our like 40 late forties Hollywood thing, I actually, actually had uh, an assistant that I hired to help collate this thing. We ended up with this files and, and sub files with like 10 or 20,000 photos of like LA in the forties and like high school yearbooks and all sorts of stuff, just to see what regular people looked like and what the neighborhoods looked like. Um, and, but we would also end up like needing something that we couldn't find. And so you dig through and it's much easier to find online, like reference uh, photos from like the forties and fifties uh, because people 
are like, of hey, course. look how cool it looked back then. No one cared about the yeah, 80s. Right. Like, no, like you, but, um, but yeah, I do. A, it's like Sean does a bunch of it himself. And sometimes though, because he's from England, he lives in the Lake District in England, which is where like yeah. Beatrix Potter lived. So everything he has to draw is all like, well, I don't know what that looks like. I mean, I sent, I, you know, when we started doing the first one, I would just send the odd photo, like, here's what a gas station looked like in 1985 or in 1981, or here's, you know, here's the street the movie theater should be on and you know, change this building into something else. And, um, and like, I do a bit of that. And then he was doing a lot of it. And I sent them, him and his son, Jake is our colorist. Um, and I sent them yeah. photos from like old seventies movies, like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot or um, uh, just to get the colors, like Terrence Malick movies. And yeah. stuff. I was like, this is what Cal, cause they've been to California recently, but I'm like, California didn't look like that in the seventies and eighties. It was green and blue. Do they like and, this by the know. way? Like, do they like you sending them pages and pages of research photos? Do you, like, I mean, do you feel like they're I like, I've asked, I assume it's helpful. <laughs> I mean, you guys have a, you guys have an amazing, uh, an amazing collaboration. So I'm sure it is good, but I wonder like, I, I yeah. think it is. Well, sometimes it's like when you describe something in a script, you're not sure if the other person understands what the thing is that you're saying, but with like specific locations, like I'm trying to make this thing, feel like if you live in LA, like I don't want to have a character driving from Silver Lake to Santa Monica and taking the wrong streets or be driving the wrong way. I'm right, like, right. No, they're going west on Santa Monica. They have to go under the 405. Like I there's whole they're driving I mean, you guys have seen they're driving into the yeah, sun. There's driving you know yeah. I mean? like yeah. there's pages of the book that are just like it's it's almost like that's that that thing on Saturday Night Live where it's like how do you get there? Like the the yeah, Californians yeah. <laughs> where it's like there's a scene in book one that describes how he actually drove from Los Angeles up to like the Willits area. Yeah. Like what highways he took and how he cut across on the street that on the highway James Dean died on and then went up the 101 the rest of the way. And it's like it's such a L.A. thing to me, because having lived in L.A. for like 10 or 12 years, like that's such a part of your life is like, how do you get there? Like there's a big scene in the third book about how fucked it is because one of well, someone's going to move from Venice to Los Feliz. And it's like, oh, I'll never fucking see you. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> you're done. Like, you might as well be moving to another state. <laughs> we, actually, we did it's something so on the show. When we did Escape from L.A., the John Carpenter sequel to Escape from New York, we either had somebody, a listener on the show, made a map of the of the locations that they hit, and it was the most ass backwards map, like yeah. the snake could have never have gotten to all these spots. And it's, so I do appreciate that, that like, I uh, try, I mean, occasionally I will fudge it just to get a cool location into a background right. or something, but I try really hard to, to have it somewhat to make it as much sense. Cause I don't want to like, I remember when I was watching singles and I lived in Seattle at the time and I'm like, oh, why singles. is she riding from downtown to Capitol Hill, but going through Fremont? I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I actually, I, I wrote an article for like uh, birth movies, death once complaining about the killing because I was like, she drove right by her house on her way to the place that she got out of the car eventually. <laughs> like the biggest pedantic dick about it. <laughs> I was I like, just look that. at a map. <laughs> what do you think? Like, I, like, obviously you are, you know, you've lived in this world 
and you know these stories, and especially when you're writing something like this, like what are things that you're avoiding or things that you don't like? Like you don't have to name like from the specific show, but uh, besides location-based oh, gaffes, yeah. like are there certain like tropes that you, and, and sexism, like are, like, you know, are there certain tropes that you kind of try to get away from or that you see overused and stuff like that? Um, you know, I really never think about that stuff when I'm working on it too much. Right. When I'm writing the story, like I figure there's only so many like mystery stories you can do. So, so much of it for me is just like, what will this character do in this situation? Like the situations are always fairly straightforward and, and, you know, rely on like the noir cliches, but the, um, the the it's the way the characters react and the things that the characters are thinking about and and their relationships that really end up driving the narrative so much that i kind of feel like like the second book is you know about uh ethan the our star character ethan is like wallowing in misery after his his dad died and he's like buying all these old like uh 16 millimeter uh tv shows from like the 50s and 60s that he grew up watching with his dad because he wants to sort of remember the good old days and and then he takes a case and meets a girl at the public library and starts dating her and then he happens to stumble across like this. He's showing her like this weird movie he's never seen before. That's like a drive-in movie from the seventies. And it turns out her sister who's been missing for eight years that he never even knew about is in the background of one of the scenes. And then that sends him on this case to try to find this girl who's been missing in in the LA film scene for like eight years. And I just, you know, it's like, if you just took it, what, what he's actually doing straight right. through, it's, you know, it's, it's just like a case from the Rockford files or, or any murder mystery book. It's like, Oh, this girl's missing. We'll track down her last, you know, it's like traditional mystery structure in a way. But the way that I told the story was much more about like how it made Ethan feel because he could tell early on how the case was going to end and how it was going to just destroy this relationship that he yeah. was actually enjoying. And and that's so- what I love about this book. And that's what I love about a lot of your books is that kind of the, the main character's understanding of the stakes of what's happening and right. the likelihood is that this is not going to end well. You yeah. know, like this, this, this story, even though these are a new, unique set of circumstances, I know how these stories end. And those are, you know, usually the, the kind of done in, you know, in movies and in TV shows with that private investigator voiceover, that kind yeah. of, right. that yeah, exactly. kind of, uh, you know, you know, kind of, ah, uh, we're all doomed kind of voiceover that, that tells you I'm going to keep moving forward. And the story is so fascinating to watch, to watch as it unfolds. Yeah. But, you know, he always knows that at the end of this, his happiness will be lost. The, the yeah. new love he'll find through giving her closure on right. yeah, this case, exactly. he, he will, he will lose her. Or I feel like one of the to to not to jump off of reckless, but to just use as an example, one of my favorite things that you've done because it's unfolded over so many years is like how generational yeah. these 
these the lawless family in the criminal books yeah. like the generational um uh, uh uh traumas and difficulties of these of these fathers to sons i feel like you write a lot about fathers and sons yeah um and which is and funny because they... i had a really good relationship with my dad i think i i a lot of people always assume i had a bad relationship with my dad or something i was like no i had a bad relationship with my mom i just flip it in the books uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Oh, that's really interesting because I feel like your your men, your dads are so deeply flawed yeah. and so deeply they cause so much mm. trauma and physical abuse and mental abuse for their for oftentimes their sons and you write such kind of almost incredibly uh, like Velvet or uh, the woman in Fatal like you write these female characters who are incredible who are not that who are yeah. not you know uh, uh, who are you know almost paragons of uh, 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 they are so uh, adept and they are they are t- taking care of business they're kick ass they're doing all yeah. this amazing stuff um, and it's the fathers who are these kind of fucking assholes you know <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I will. Ch- ch- I mean, Teague Lawless, especially from the criminal books, is yeah. You know, he's like a guy who comes home from Vietnam with PTSD, and like I remember, like when I was a little kid, the first one of the first memories I have of my dad is when he returned from Vietnam because he he oh, was wow. he was he came back for when I was born, and then he went back to Vietnam because he was Navy intelligence over there. So he was over there for like three or four years. Um, Speaking of Magnum, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so which is which I will say there is a tremendous it's so interesting to me there are a tremendous amount of mid 80s TV shows Magnum PI um the A team are grappling with the generation of men who've come home from Vietnam and don't know what to do yeah. and are lost and are yeah. and are gra- grappling with what they did and what they saw like so much of Magnum PI having just watched it is yes about a handsome playboy private investigator in Hawaii, but a tremendous amount of it is about Vietnam flashbacks. Yeah. PTSD. Oh wow, I didn't realize it going, would go going, that deep because it, I always felt they like they go back to rescue prisoners of war. Yeah, like it's it's Vietnam is a constant uh, issue for for TC Rick and Magnum. Constantly. Yeah, it was. I mean, up until the late eighties. Uh, you know, older friends of mine would still talk to you about that time when their draft number came up and they had to decide whether they were going to like go or, or flee the country or or how they got lucky and they drew like a big number. So they weren't ever picked. And like I knew people like people who mentored me in comics and stuff who who actually dealt with all that. And but I remember you know, like because I grew up and, you know, I'm a Navy brat. So like I moved from from Gitmo to San Diego when I was like seven years old. And I remember seeing like the first like homeless vets on the street and stuff. And, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was definitely like a theme, like homelessness now is on a whole other scale. And I don't know how many of those are veterans. I'm sure a lot of them are veterans from the Gulf Wars and, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, And it's just this part of it that I really, you know, like in Reckless, especially when I got to that, which is like the reason he as a teenager goes right from being like the teenage son of a Navy Intel guy to working for the FBI and being like an undercover hippie in the Weather Underground movement was because, you know, his dad didn't want him to go to Vietnam. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, and right. he, yeah. this kid raised on military bases, so he didn't know anything. And then he got over there and a couple of years into this, he's kind of like, Hey, I'm on the other side actually. And uh, yeah. then he's in too deep. So it was like, I really, I had thought of that for a character for a long time. Cause when I was reading about all the, all the uh, FBI infiltration and COINTELPRO, I really wanted to do something about someone who'd lived through that and having that be part of Ethan's backstory was like, he's, sort of out of that student movement, Watergate, you know, I mean, when you go back and you do research, you can find newspapers from, especially like you can find a Santa Cruz newspaper that's like about surfers finding dead bodies on like in the shore wow. of like serial kill. Yeah, there was three serial killers operating in Santa Cruz at the same time. Uh, Timothy Leary being broken out of jail, Watergate, and then buildings being blown up in San Francisco. Like this will all be like one front page. And you're like, holy shit, a lot of shit was happening back then. Well, we were, um, we were just talking about this, like in the sense of I was uh, I just seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And and part of that was coming out of this idea of like you know, this peace and love movement there, but yet the world is kind of starting to crumble around them. That's uh, this idea of the, you know, certain things were closing off to people. Other people were uh, not understanding why there was so much violence around it. It really is interesting how much it got into the work. And I would say that we're in a very parallel situation right now. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of just discontentment uh, across the board. But I think what is always so interesting about these books ultimately is you have so much time to really allow the weight of the character's backstory to like live with them. And I, and now hearing that Magnum did it, I'm, I was more, I'm surprised, but it's like this idea that you can actually, well, every episode like, continue, yeah. you know, like you, like, it, it's not like, okay, we solved that mystery. Now we're back clean slate. It's like, no, everything you like leaves a I little just, bit of a mark. I just recently watched an episode of Magnum where you see, but in the case, in the, in the, in the course of the episode, both Magnum and TC are having uh, PTSD flashbacks to Vietnam. Yeah. And at the end, at the end of the episode, I think Magnum says to TC or maybe TC says to Magnum, hey, do you ever think about it? Uh, you know, back there, what we did. And do you ever think about it? And the other says, no, never. So yeah. they don't even right. they don't even share it with you. They don't even share their traumas with each other. They just keep them inside. And as the seasons go on, it just gets more and more of it. Like it really remains such a prevalent part of their stories is that period of time they spent in Vietnam. And that is for a TV show that is ostensibly yachts and ferraris and you know <laughs> right. you know magnum has to protect this statue from being stolen by this yeah. per, you know the, the all of the hallmarks of you know that kind of a you know playboy style uh, um pi show for it to be like suffused with this deep dark melancholy and these very uncomfortable flashbacks is kind of incredible you yeah. know that they were doing that I actually lived in Hawaii for ninth grade. My dad, after he got out of the military, worked for like a military contractor and he moved over there and my, and my brother stayed at my mom's and I moved with my dad because I thought it'll be fun to live in Hawaii. And, you know, it wasn't actually that fun um, <laughs> to be in ninth grade in Hawaii, but uh, were you an outcast were there? Made... Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I was one of five Howleys in my school. Um, 
it was mm. it was it was not a fun experience. I learned how to ditch school. I discovered punk rock because Rock and Roll High School was on HBO every day, and I would ditch <laughs> I would ditch school because these these Samoans would wait for me outside of the typing class uh, uh, um, to beat me up before typing class like three times a week, and so mm -hmm. I just started ditching school at lunch and walking home and and uh, but and you I, still can't type. Yeah, I, I learned to type. forever to learn how to type because of that. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the uh, when I lived there, I never single I never saw a single person who looked like Magnum P. I know there were no guys walking around in like a Hawaiian shirt and dolphin shorts. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I was like, I never saw it. It always it always cracked me up. And I remember people on the island. My friend's aunt had like a farm, and Magnum someone from Magnum had come to location scout it and didn't film there. And she was like, oh, ugh, well, who cares about that show anyway? And I'm like, well, you know, like 90% of America, apparently it's watched uh, by like 40 million people a week. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing too. Incredible. Like these shows were watched by everyone. Just so people know, and we are talking about Reckless, the book three. <laughs> uh, book three. We are talking uh, about Magnum PI. <laughs> yeah. This is our Magnum cast. Um, book three comes, This uh, that would be our spinoff podcast is we just go through Magnum. Jason, you you lead us through. And, by the way, I just did it. I, I told I could, you. I, I could do it. I told um, you, Paul, my, I wanted to do the Rockford Files files. Yeah. Yeah. Just me and a guest like watch Rockford in order. You it's, can do it. It's all on uh, the Peacock now. Yeah. The Peacock has yeah. Rockford. They have all the Columbos, including the first two uh, and uh, 90 minute long. Um, the, that one, the IRA one, huh? the IRA Columbo one. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the is late incredible. era Columbos like are movie. weird. There's I like worked, a Columbo yeah. that's yeah. adapted from an Ed McBain novel where he goes to like a wedding and he pulls a gun on someone and shoots someone. I'm like, wow. Columbo shot somebody? Uh, <laughs> my, uh, I worked with Kate Mulgrew on NTSF SDSUV and she was Mrs. Columbo. Mrs. Columbo, yeah. Which was the spinoff of Columbo. Uh, and the know. people who created Columbo were so mad about it that they had to like yank that show and retitle it as something else. It was it ended up being called Kate and the Detective. Yeah, I, I think Kate. I think it was called Kate the Detective. Yeah, Kate and the then, Detective. And oh, wow. then it was yeah, called changed her Kate name. Loves a Mystery. Yeah, Kate Loves a Mystery, and they changed her last name because the Levinson huh. and Link were were like not consulted and were against it and they were like oh no we will never make more Columbo if you if you keep doing this to us I mean it's but so that's they, interesting they, also, they, they gave her a divorce like 12 when they got married yes if you look at because <laughs> in the early Columbo's he talks about having been married for like 20 years and she was like 25 when that show started or something <laughs> I mean, well, like, so Kate Mulgrew right now, just according, like, is in her uh, mid-60s, right? So if you look at, like, how old Peter Falk would have been, I mean, that would have been a very bizarre marriage. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's TV, I think, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you know, like, it's yeah. TV. <laughs> But I mean, um, it was realistic for the seventies. <laughs> oh my! He died. He died at eighty three in two thousand eleven. So he would have been nine. So she's mid sixties, and he would be mid nineties right now. Like yeah, that, like, yeah. that was a thirty year age. The saddest gap. thing too. He he during the last years of his life couldn't even remember that there was uh, that he'd ever played a character called Columbo. Oh, his, oh. his dementia was so far gone. Apparently. By the way, if you if uh, I know we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but. 
Mike and Nikki, Elaine May is a great uh, Peter Falk. I mean, not a Columbo thing, but a Peter Falk performance oh, yeah. that yes. is phenomenal. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah. All the, uh, and, uh, all the stuff he did with Cassavetes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's why Columbo was on so seldom, actually, was because he wanted to keep making all the weird art films with Cassavetes and stuff. He didn't want to do like 20 episodes a year. That's why Columbo, when I was a kid, it was like my parents before they got divorced. It was a big deal. Oh, Columbo is going to be on because Columbo was only on like once every three months. It felt like a movie coming out in like, yeah, it felt like a movie coming out in the theaters. And some of them are movie length. You know, yeah, they the, were a like lot of movie, them were 90 minutes. They were like, yeah, yeah or movies, longer. They were basically yeah. movies of the week style yeah. episodes. You yeah, know, they, had, uh, that, the way they, they had a thing. It was like a Thursday night uh, thing on, was it CBS? One of those channels, uh, it's NBC. I can't remember which one they were on, but it was them. Uh, the there was one with rock Hudson and, and somebody where they were like a husband and wife solving crimes. And there was McLeod. But what about, you know, cloud? Yeah. What do you think? I mean, everyone's been talking about it, Jason. They've all been saying, you know, uh, that Jesse Stone is the rightful successor to Magnum, you know, Tom Selleck now doing these Jesse Stone stories every week on CBS or occasionally. (laughs) Oh, I, I don't even know what that is. Oh, okay. So Jesse Stone is Tom <laughs> Hanks's detective character uh, based uh, based on uh, wait Tom Hanks? Oh, sorry, sorry, no. Tom Selleck. So Tom sorry. Selleck. Okay, sorry. I was like, whoa, whoa, yeah, Tom whoa. Hanks is back okay. on TV. Stealthily. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wait, so he's playing a new detective character. This is not Blue Blood. No, no, no. He's on a series of books, I think, by Robert Parker. I yeah, see. Robert yeah. Parker wrote a, a bunch of books. Oh, they're Parker books. Yeah, yeah, okay. by the guy who did Spencer for Hire. So this is his oh, new thing. Got it. So he got it, pops it, up it. a lot with these Jesse Stone, uh, Jesse Stone. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, I got to check that out. Okay. I will, while we're talking about Parker, I will just shout out the Darwin Cook Parker adaptations that I think are absolutely some of the best comics done in the last 50 years. Yeah. That was you part know. of my inspiration for starting these, the for doing Reckless the way we did as graphic novels, because... I have been, Sean and I, Sean designed it, uh, but uh, after Darwin passed away, we volunteered to sort of help sort of present the, um, they do these martini editions of those where they collect Mm -hmm. two of them with all these extras and stuff. And so I was like, I don't, there's nothing I can do. Uh, Can I help like put this book together and help edit the book and do something for this book and help you promote it to just sort of get his work out there to help curate it. And so I was, I went back and I read all those books again. Um, and the next one comes out like early next year, I think the, they the are final, the final some one. of yeah, they're amazing. truly he's the best. And I will, I will also now use this as a segue to talk uh, with you about your work with Darwin Cook on Catwoman. Oh, yeah. Which Ooh, yeah. is, again, if you like crime stories, I feel like, and, you know, I don't want to tell you what you were thinking, but these are, you know, I feel like you using Catwoman to tell your style of crime caper stories, but with DC characters. Yeah. And Darwin draws uh, an, at least volume one. Yeah, he drew the first, a little bit, the first a little bit one. More. Yeah, I, I yeah. conned him into drawing the first one because we were redesigning the character and and we just really hit it off talking about old crime novels and stuff. And 
Um, but yeah, that was, that was amazing. We just kind of lucked into that. Everything. I think if you look at almost everything that I did in superhero comics, I was either doing a crime story that had superheroes in it or an espionage story that had like my Captain America run is, is as much influenced by like Le Carre or like even the show 24, uh, you know, as it is, you know, super old superhero comics, because, yeah. I really wanted to get that feel of like, oh, a government agent. There's all sorts of shield in it everywhere. And, you know, and that stuff has been, I've, I'm told, really influential on those movies. So. Well, I mean, I was actually having a conversation with somebody this week. And unbeknownst to them, I, you know, that we're friends, they they started talking about Gotham PD and how much they've been trying to chase down and make Gotham PD for such a long time. And it was so interesting. Like, this is somebody that I've never talked comics with or or anything and was such a giant fan of that like it's interesting to see like oh wow people really have found their own books and know different things about you know it's 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 interesting to see how how your tentacles have kind of gone yeah that one has a really long like shelf life for people like people are still discovering gotham central and um i'm always amazed uh you know when i meet somebody in hollywood and that's one of their reference points and i was like we were so like greg ruck and i just wanted to write the cops because we thought yeah because there's no way to make Batman scary when you're hanging out with Batman all the time and you're in his head all right. the time. It's like, but Batman's super scary if you're a cop and you show up and like Mr. Freeze kills your partner by freezing him in a block of ice and then shattering yeah. it. It's like, oh, that's terrifying. And you can't even solve that case. You need this fucking masked guy that you have to turn a light on on the roof. It's <laughs> like how demoralizing to be those cops. Um but yeah, we, we really, I mean, we spent like four years working on that book and I'm still, you know, I mean, they're just doing a new definitive collection of it where I finally got them to, um, there was always a misprint. They left out a layer of snow in one of our issues of the Joker storyline where he kills everybody, where he like kills the mayor and, yeah. and is like messing up Gotham in general. There was this whole sequence where they left out all the overlays of the snow so people are holding out their hands going wow it's really coming down and there's nothing uh, there so it drove oh us crazy God. no one else ever noticed but i but i my friend is now the editor-in-chief at dc so i just asked her if we could finally fix it because they always told us oh there's no way to fix it and i was like i'm pretty sure we can fix it yeah really at this easy. point you can do it. <laughs> now um, technology is like it took five minutes to fix <laughs> Are you also put? I think this was announced. You are putting. They are putting out uh, uh, an omnibus of the Catwoman stuff. You. I think they're doing that, and they're doing a new Gotham Central one. Um, Yeah, they don't really consult us on these things, but I just see them when they get announced. And then I'm like, oh, Gotham, cool. and these are I, I will say to this, if you know, to the people who are listening, these are both books that are accessible to everybody yes. even if you are not a superhero uh comics you know nerd from back in the day even if you didn't grow up reading i think what's great about the catwoman stuff is these are crime stories and you yeah. understand you understand the architecture and the archetypes that they are being that are being used and gotham central is these are police stories yeah. you know and it's yeah. not a it's not unlike i've been rereading astro city um oh, yeah. recently oh, which is a, just such yeah. a wonderful story marvel's really a, yeah marvel's and astro city were big influences on on for me at least on gotham central because i, I liked the the like ground level view of these things yes. that are happening where it's the like human, yeah. the human stories about people whose lives are 
lived inside of a world in which there's a Batman, in which there's a Mr. Freeze, I never understood. Are, I never understood you know, why there wasn't an Astro City t- TV show. Like it just it I, I like, like it was they've, so. They've tried a few times. Okay. Yeah, because um, it. And by the way, if just to talk about it, because Reckless obviously has the three books have come out with within the last 10 months, 10 months, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, yeah. And it follows up. And these are, these are big, these are not like, no, they're like 150 comics. Page. These are, yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're all complete stories. It's not like a trilogy. I'm working on the fourth one now. They're all about a hundred. And they, I, I sort of modeled them after how long Darwin did the Parker books because I thought, okay, I can fit this much story in, you know, based on what he did. And, you know, I always wish I had 20 more pages, but we have deadlines. Right. Um, and, but, <laughs> but yeah, I had this crazy idea because if we were going to switch to just going straight to graphic novels, I didn't want all our, all the retailers who love our books and, and, you know, have been supporting us for almost 20 years now as a team to not have stuff to sell. And I just thought we'll put out the first one in December. We'll put out the second one in April. There'll only be a couple months in between. And then we'll put out the the third one in October. We're doing two next year. Um, And I just really wanted to try to get them out quickly. Luckily, Sean is, is the most reliable artist in comics, I think at this point. And, um, that has, you know, that has, I think we killed ourselves getting the first three done in, in that span of time. It took us a little, about a year and three months or four months to, to do all of them. We had enough. And you're watching time. all the Rockfords and you're watching and you're yeah. reading all this stuff. Uh, but, and, you're, and you're reading all of this stuff. One of the things that I want to say for, again, for people who are going to seek out your work, one of the, one of my absolute favorite parts of your books is, especially in issues, yeah. is at the back of every, in the back of every Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips book, Criminal, Fatal, The Fade Out, is an essay. An essay that is usually about a movie, a book, a character that has informed this story so if it's fatal there'll be an essay about hp lovecraft or if it's you know and those essays are just chock full of references things that have inspired you not you know authors movies and you have sent me on so many you know journeys to read or watch or you know all this stuff that is like really so informative both in in experiencing your stuff but also like so enriching in terms of what i'm consuming so yeah. like i can't recommend enough that people you'll go down a giant rabbit by, hole and you'll yeah. find you can, and you can find yeah, what you like are- those are in the single issues, like the backups. I, and I don't, I probably only wrote about 10% of them. And a lot of them are written by like uh, Kim Morgan, who co-wrote the the new um, Nightmare Alley with Guillermo del Toro, actually. Um, just a lot of like movie critic friends or like Pat Oswalt wrote one. Um, just, uh, he turned everybody in the world onto Blast of Silence, I think, which is one of my favorite movies ever made. And like Scorsese's favorite movie that he saw growing up, I think. And um, yeah, I that's the one thing about going from the, the single issues to the graphic novels that I miss and that I get complaints from our readers about like, well, now I'm not getting these. But, I, but I'm like, yeah, but you don't get to the end of a novel and have a bunch of articles by friends of Raymond Chandler yeah. about other things. <laughs> but I do, I have been coming up with some plans for a way to, to sort of do, maybe collect some of the old ones and put some new ones out and, and some do some kind of big, uh, like, research magazine kind of thing, but, but like, 
about noir. Like I think well, it would be that. cool to do like a once a year, like, you know, $10 big, like Ed, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips's noir magazine. Yeah. Um, it really is fun because it gives you so much more. You've, if you've loved this book, it yeah. gives you so much more stuff to discover that you will also love. And that's, well, that's what of, I really appreciate. One of my favorite uh, things that ever happened at a signing early on in the, when I was still probably in the first 10 issues of Criminal, me and Brian Bendis did a signing in New York at uh, Jim Hanley's Universe. And one of the kids in line uh, was John Turturro's son. And my article about Out of the Past had gotten them to watch Out of the Past, and John Turturro had never seen Out of the Past and Whoa, became obsessed wow. with Robert Mitchum after that. And they were like listening to the Mitchum Sings Calypso album. And um, and I like emailed back and forth with John Turturro for a little while, which was just a, a blast. Um, but just the idea that like, here's one of my favorite actors who had never seen a movie until he read the article in the back of an issue of Criminal, which I was just like, holy shit. <laughs> like, so, that, that, that is possible. I love that. And I, <laughs> that's awesome. And I know we have to wrap up, but I will say I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention also Pulp, which just has come out uh, fairly recently as well and is a great, uh, a different, I mean, again, a, a totally different, uh, really uh, amazing book. And you were saying at that point, like, this is like your best selling book, right? Or is Pulp your pulp best? Is, pulp is probably, Pulp and the Fade Out, I think, are our best selling things we've ever done, um, both of which are old which are period pieces which yeah most people would think would not be big sellers but yeah pulp is is sort of uh it's part of it's part western and part depression era crime story about like a guy who was kind of like a butch cassidy era like um because because you know you had like billy the kid and those guys like, the end early of the cowboys yeah, yeah. The, the, the days of cowboys when when cars were coming in and when the pinkertons were really yeah. hunting people down and it's it's about a guy like that who survived and then later in life writes pulp stories that are fictionalized versions of his true story and it, and it all it takes place around the same time as that uh, big uh, american nazi uh, rally in Madison Square Garden that you know there's been documentaries about and stuff and uh, but yeah that was a that was just one Sean wanted to do a western and that was as close as I could get it's about an old man who who oh so that's interesting so it came from Sean he wanted it to do a Sean, western and yeah. yeah there's so like eight cool. pages of that. western in it and then it's all just like this old man and but in you want New more of it it's so you guys write the western stuff so fun it's it really is great and it's and that's a one shot right I mean, you, yeah yeah that one was just uh yeah that was just uh, a seven that was our that went to print the day that everything shut down including the printer and the distributor so wow. it just sat there for months. And we started working on Reckless because I was like, well, I don't know if the market's going to open up, but we'll just start these graphic novels and we'll do one twice as long as Pulp. And I really, when I was working on it, thought no one would like Pulp or, or that it wouldn't be a thing anyone cared about. And then it came out right after comic stores opened again. And I was hearing from, you know, some of our big retailers, they were selling, you know, three or 400 copies of it the week it came out. And I was like, holy shit, wow. this is a huge hit. Uh, we sold out of, we printed enough to last, I thought a year or two. And we sold out in a, in a little under six weeks. And now the, the paperback has gone through three printings and it won the Eisner for best graphic novel. And we've had a shit ton of Hollywood interest in it. And, um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a huge surprise. Every time I think everybody's going to hate whatever the book it is, 
because I always have that moment right <laughs> yeah. before it comes out where I'm like, sure, I'm so close to it. Like, is this good or did I fuck this up or, you know, and then you, and then if you look online ever, like I don't have social media, thank God, but I do have like email that people can send me. And it's always that like one person who's nitpicking the thing that gets under there because they're seeing that one thing you hope no one would notice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm like, yeah, but you know, uh, like Joe Hill liked it and Patton Oswald liked it. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't get caught it. up in that. Um, all right. So, Ed, well, but just because yeah. we're wrapping up, I know we have to go. I will. I do want to shout out as well. The, I know we talked a lot about your collaboration today with Sean Phillips, but you are also doing a book, a digital only book with one of my favorite artists, Marcos Martin called Friday. Yeah. Uh, that's available on panel syndicate. Yeah. We're printing that um, right now. It's at the printer. Oh, for great. The first yeah, the first act of it is coming out in paperback. It's actually the paperback's going to be the same size as those uh, Darwin Cook Parker books, like oh, six cool. by awesome. nine, a little bit smaller than yeah. comic size. It's a great book. It's like a I don't know. I'm going to say like an Encyclopedia Brown, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew kind of story. Would you agree with that? But with like more Are of those a horror your... vibe, yeah. Like yes, a, like, exactly. lo- like if yeah, Lovecraft with... was was doing like YA books in the sixties, yeah. And it has that okay, real. Yeah. Like I told Marcos when we started working on it, I was like, it takes place in this timeless nineteen seventies New England that doesn't really exist anymore. But like, think about like Wes Anderson movies, how they always kind of feel yeah. like they're the late sixties or yeah. early seventies, but they just don't specify. Like, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's been that's been a blast. Marcos is is a, is a much slower artist than Sean. But, you know, we publish yes. the chapters digitally and you and, can get them uh, on a panel syndicate and you yeah, just get it right syndicate. to download it right to your yeah, you can pay what pay whatever you want. Get it for pay nothing and, and read it or pay pay money and read it. And, uh, you know, but, yeah, we're collecting it's great. It in uh, the in, it's a three act story and we're collecting um those like three chapters at a time and then we'll hopefully put out a big deluxe edition of the whole thing when it's done but yeah marcos is just about uh, wrapped up with the fourth chapter we're hoping that'll come out the same day as the trade paperback collection oh, the first awesome. i love it ed it's been such a pleasure to talk to you thank you for joining us on this quar chat destroy all monsters which is the third in the reckless book series comes out on october 20th you can get it uh, at your local comic book store. You can get it at a little bookstore. You can find it anywhere online. Uh, but also just go to the brick and mortar stores, support yeah. them as well. Uh, Panel Syndicate is where you can find uh, Friday. And if you want to get Catwoman, I would say wait for that omnibus. Uh, or, <laughs> or, 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 or otherwise, God, you're the, paying a lot of money on eBay. Which, yeah. Yeah. Spoiler alert: I, is what I did. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> um, but by the way, as we were talking here, I just uh, purchased Blast of Silence because I've never even heard of that, and oh uh, they have it on Amazon too. So you can get that. Yeah, the, the Criterion. Criterion cover art by Sean Phillips. Yeah, uh, which is amazing. Really, yeah. really great. Excellent. All right. All right. Thanks, well, thanks, so much, thanks, Ed. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jason. And now, on to next week's film. Now that we got Malignant out of the way, let's talk about our next film. We are going from killer malignants to killer cats. That's right. Next week, we are watching the 1987, not so classic, Uninvited. Now, just want to rewarn you. It's the 1987 Uninvited, not the new Uninvited. Here's a short breakdown of the plot. Uh, Spring Break teens and an escaped laboratory mutant cat board a yacht with a financier and his henchmen. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh boy. Uh, I cannot wait for you to watch this. Rotten Tomatoes gives us no score. Uh, and Stacy Wilson, who is uh, the only fan critic to review this movie, says this movie is a real hairball of a horror film. Let's take a listen to the trailer. They say cats have nine lives. You have only one. A poisonous cat. Now, how's that possible? You're gonna be richer than your wildest dreams. Nothing's gonna keep me from getting to the Caymans. Now start the engine and get us headed for the Caymans. Things are gonna bite us, and we're all gonna die a horrible You can buy or rent Uninvited on Amazon Prime or Apple TV. You can even watch it on Amazon Prime with commercials if you don't want to pay for it. Or please always check your local public libraries where you can find many movies for free. So good. Uh, And you know what? We like to be fair and balanced here on the show. That's why on today's episode of Movie Bitches, we are going to have a two-minute malignant review. That's right. Our amazing producer, Avril Halley, is breaking down the movie with... Special guest, James Mansfield. Take a listen. Two-minute malignant review starts now. Cheers! Welcome to Movie Bitches. Hey, everybody. A very special episode because we have James Mansfield with us. What is this movie y'all made me watch? Today we're reviewing Malignant. The new James Wan film from 2021 that everybody's talking about. I love this movie, I think. It has a slow middle, but I had a great time. I was laughing till I gave myself a headache. So that's my hot take. This movie wants to be like eight different better and not so better movies. Uh Uh-huh. Dead Ringers, How to Get Ahead in Advertising, all the Frank Henlotter, Basket Case, Brain Damage. I had wrote down in my notes, like, I'm pretty sure James Wan fell asleep during the eyes of Laura Mars and woke (gasps) up in Basket Case. Oh my God, yes! (laughs) I do appreciate the B-movie quality of it. Like, this was not a a real movie. (laughs) No. Well, so it starts, and the New Line Cinema logo popped up, which was so nostalgic. Oh, I was so excited. They got their start in Midnight Movies. I think they originally distributed Pink Flamingos. But the fact that this is on HBO Max, and it's this big studio movie and it's this oh i just loved it i ate it up with a spoon i was high as a kite when i watched this i was convinced the lead actress was dakota johnson oh my god she was in the dakota johnson drag like everyone was in some sort of drag of somebody else more famous than them that wig really gave away a lot of plot points it was like oh they needed to hide the blood pack back that's why the wig's so awful Oh, they're hiding some other things back there, too. Okay, I see. I see what's happening. Well, James Wan made, you know, all of the money for Aquaman. And basically they said, do whatever you want. And I'm I'm happy that he did this swing versus, you know, another Conjuring movie or something. So I would say thumbs up for me. It was something to behold. Certainly that. That's it for the show. Please remember to rate and review us. It helps. Tell your friends uh, all about the show. We love having you here and listening. And remember to visit us on Twitter and Instagram and Discord. We love seeing your comments and we love seeing your malignants. And if you want to hear this show commercial for you can do that. You can just sign up for Stitcher Premium. You can get a one month free trial by using the code BONKERS. And uh, Stitcher Premium, the app is getting better, people. It's getting better. A big thank you to our producer, Cody, for putting this together. Our brilliant engineer, Devin. And of course, our MVP, Molly. Uh, a shout out to Avril Halley and the Movie Bitches. You can follow them always on YouTube. Uh, a big thank you to July Diaz for listening through making sure this episode 
episode sounds perfect, and everyone at Earwolf for making this possible. We will see you next time for The Uninvited. Remember, the 1987 version of Uninvited with cats and a boat. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.